Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Tag your it. Well, I'm hungry, so when do we eat? I really love this story that we just heard and that Pastor Meg just shared in a special way and that our kids helped us open. Because I think it's one of those quintessential scripture stories. It's, in some ways, it's kind of like a, a scripture, though often in prose can kind of be like poetry in that it, it gives more than it is. It, it's, it's, it's superfluous. It's gratuitous. This, of course, is grace. It alludes more deeply to God's whole immersive story and impacts us so much later than the actual just events that it details. You see, this simple, delightful story, this is definitely a kid's Bible story, right? As Pastor Meg said, it's, it's in all four Gospels. So that either means it's important or at least it figures prominently in how each evangelist imagines Jesus' life and words, how they can be for us good news. There's a lot going on here. In the background of the story, this is just like a little line, but if you read before it, is John the Baptist's death. It's a, a sad and corrupt way to die. In some ways, casting this story into that shadow reminds us that there are a lot of different kinds of power in this world. There's the power of grace to create and to multiply. And then there's also violent power that eliminates and subtracts. Matthew's gospel is not mute or ignorant of the fact of that matter, and God doesn't work in a vacuum. So even deeper, though, our story is is really connected. This isn't just a story that comes out of nowhere for us. It's connected to God's liberation work in calling God's people out of Israel. And you might think, how is, how is this an Exodus story? It is, it is very much a, this feeding is a recapitulation of that moment. 
not just in the life of Israel, but in the history of the world. This story, this Exodus story is always in the background, but it's particularly backgrounded in this story. And, and that story, the Exodus story, is, is so key to how we know who God is. We don't get to just make up who God is for us. We don't get to scale up whatever our greatest notion of what God could be. We have to pray and think specifically about God as the God who brought Israel out of Egypt and who raised Jesus from the dead. So, so those, those stories are always with us. Robert Jensen's a theologian who defines God as God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. Resurrection and Exodus are always together, and they're always underneath every story. We're given little clues and links, though. Matthew loves to do this, so read carefully in your Matthew story. Like Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount the, there's a mountain happening. There are all of these um, constitutive uh, ways for God's people to be. It sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments, right? It sounds a little like Moses, right? So Matthew's always kind of playing with these tropes and these recapitulations of what God is doing in Jesus based on what God has done with God's people for a long time. So in our passage, um, did you notice that the little detail says the crowd follows Jesus on foot? It says it twice. It's kind of subtle. How else were they going to follow Jesus? Probably. Like, maybe horseback, maybe by cart, but certainly on foot would be, like, the main mode of transportation. But I think Matthew puts that little phrase in there because it is the exact phrase for how Israel moves out of Egypt. Exodus 12 says, The children of Israel journeyed from uh, Pharaoh Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600 thousand men on foot. In numbers, God makes sure that the people get fed. Maybe that's how this connects here. He says, the number among whom uh, I am are 600,000 on foot. And you said, meat I will give them. So you see, God is doing this work with these people on foot. Connecting these two stories gives a really dynamic picture of how God works, of how grace works. You see, many of us have come up and been taught that grace is, is this gift that we are given that we don't deserve. And I, I think that's true, but that's only part of it. Grace is also being given what we need and exactly when we need it. Grace is being given what we need exactly when we need it. Bread for the journey, but also freedom and ability to eat Grace always comes to us when we're in a little bit of a pickle, when we're caught unawares, when uh, grace comes to us both before we're ready to receive it or recognize it, but also when we can't wait any longer. That's how grace comes to us. When we don't really know how this all is going to pan out, how it could all possibly work, when we're not quite sure whether there will be enough, this is how grace comes. The Exodus reminds us that we are being saved by grace. And being saved by grace means being freed from captivity. It means being rescued from the wrong that we've done, sure, but also from the systems of exploitation and sin and greed and slavery and death that have us all caught up. 
that we participate in, and grace interrupts that. Grace makes a way out where there was seemingly and literally no way out. In that sense, grace is always creative. It, it creates. It's not just additive, it is exponential. In the Exodus story, grace takes the Red Sea even, this impediment. Like the Red Sea was where uh, God's people were going to flee out of Egypt and not be able to cross and be slaughtered, right? It, grace takes that Red Sea, blesses it, breaks it open, splits it open, and creates a, a highway towards salvation. It's a place where God's people can be given out of the stubborn hands and hardened heart of Pharaoh into something new with God. A new life and a new place, even if that place isn't shown or known. So abandon the notion that grace is just like some death row pardon that is slapped on top of a life well-lived but not quite perfect, right? Abandon the, the notion that grace just adds on and then we can keep controlling our life and keep on living. No, grace is more radical. Grace goes down to the root of things. Grace calls us out, out of bondage and into freedom. To be saved by grace means to be set free. And Jesus demonstrates this as he reappears from the deserted place, again, maybe an Exodus illusion, the, the desert, <laughs> that place of grief, that place of trauma over the death of his cousin. And he emerges and, and he has compassion on these crowds who are looking for grace. Since Jesus has compassion, that, that word is, is this really visceral word that basically means Jesus' guts are churning inside of him for them. He sees them, and he begins to give them grace by means of healing. This way, grace is therapeutic. It has healing properties, sometimes, though, over a long period of time. And as the day goes on, it seems that Jesus' team hadn't planned or accounted for such a crowd in such a place. This was also an Exodus problem. While grace finds us in a tight spot and makes a way out, it also often creates a set of new and unforeseen quote-unquote problems. How are these people going to eat? Beware of hungry crowds that might soon become hangry crowds, right? In the desert, though, God per provides. Grace comes in the desert. God provides not just enough, but, but more than enough. Baskets and baskets of enough. And in so doing, God's people are acclimated to a new culture, taken out of, of Pharaoh's culture of grinding efficiency and scarcity built on the backs of certain people. Instead, God gives. Collect enough for the day, each day. There will be enough. It'll be there when you need it. This is the logic of manna in the desert. In fact, remember God's Sabbath rest and collect enough to join into it. It'll keep just for that day. 
But don't get greedy, don't get desperate. That won't work. Grace doesn't work that way. In a similar way, Jesus gently guides his disciples to participate in these logics of grace. They're very aware of the crowds. Like Jesus, they, they have compassion on them, but their compassion manifests and send them away before it gets too dark and they can't get out of here with, without getting some food. They don't want to see the crowd suffer, but unlike Jesus, they don't yet have an imagination for how there could possibly be enough. They can't fathom the availability of God's unfathomable grace. Jesus says, this is a classic line, there's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. This makes me think, we mentioned it last week, but this makes me think of a, a really special time in the life of Oak Church at the very beginning of the pandemic. We knew, we didn't know much. We thought like, oh, this will blow over. We'll be back here in a couple weeks. But when it seemed like we were going to be here for a while, and by here I mean in the Zoom rooms of our living room couches, um, it, it became evident that we need to figure out how to continue to, um, to eat together and to provide for those who need something, who, who come to potluck meals because it's the best meal they get all week. This was a you give them something to eat. We didn't really know how that was going to work. We started these makeshift gatherings, and we were giving away small increment food line cards, and that gathering grew to about 50 people in the span of like three or four weeks, and we were giving away 500 plus dollars of groceries that we had not budgeted, and thank goodness um, we just kept doing it. This was a you give them something to eat situation. Eventually that, that shifted to uh, to hot lunches and eventually our parking lot church and now that has been grafted back into our potluck. So every time we gather for a potluck, it is a you give them something to eat situation. In a difficult and isolating and uncertain time for our little church, we were being called into Jesus's life of practical abundance. Practical and also like practicable abundance. You give them something to eat is a challenging and it's a simple invitation as much as it's a command. Because you give them something to eat can feel really daunting when it feels like, well, Jesus, we, we don't have something to give them. Thank you very much. It can feel terrifying when it seems that Jesus is just like asking us to dig deeper and we already know there's nothing at the bottom of the barrel. There's nothing there. You give them something to eat can feel really awkward and foreign when we're being told our whole lives where we've been telling ourselves that we don't actually have anything worth giving anyone else. We don't have anything at all that's helpful or healthful for others. But the next line is really key, even if it's just like a primitive grocery list. Like I always find these fragments in my pockets when I don't wear a shirt for a while or pants of like old grocery lists or like when I'm going through my phone, I have just like five items in my notes, right? I'm sure you have this. It, that's what it kind of feels like in here, these fragments, the fish and the loaves, but these fragments give way to plenty. They said, we have nothing here except for five loaves and two fish. 
whoa, there's a lot of work being done by that word except, right? Just in that, that one space, we have nothing except what we have, Jesus. Somewhere in the short space of that word except, God's grace changes everything. There's a, a transfiguration that occurs. Maybe just even just a mental transfiguration. It'll happen if we let it. This is how we too are being saved by grace. So this week, take inventory. Not of what you need, but what you have. What, what you might use, what you might offer, what you might be generous with, what you are thankful for. Rejoice for these gifts. Just that. There, there's like no step two on that homework. Just take inventory of, of what you have. Do you see how remarkable this is? It means that we can just show up with who we are and what we have and trust that God will make it not just enough but more than enough for us, for others. That we, we actually kind of have everything that we need already. We actually might even have enough for leftovers, barrels of leftovers. That's the craziest part of that story. And again, it's, a, it's an allusion to the 12 tribes, these 12 baskets, that God is continuing to call and make a people, and there's more than enough. So every time you show up with that mindset, it is, it is an act of faith and a practice of grace. Honestly, that's, every time I show up in this pulpit, <laughs> it, it, is, it, it is an act of faith and a, a practice of grace to say, like, Man, I don't know how this is going to work, but I think it's enough, and I think God's going to do something with it. And there might actually be some leftovers, some, some crumbs. In that case, we're starting school season. And, and I know for as, as fun as the summer is, many of us are going into school on E, not knowing if there's going to be enough. Just show up with what you have, aware that God will, will and can make it enough. That's the case when you wake up as a parent, or as a roommate, or as a spouse, or as a friend, as a neighbor, you have enough. You have more than enough. Open your hands to share that, and God will make it plenty. That happens when you move into a new home or a new place, and, and you don't know anyone, or you, or you don't know how this is going to work. You, you open your life up, and God is going to make it more than enough, because God's grace takes and blesses, and breaks, and gives, and in so doing creates this like strange culture of ludicrous, and luxurious, and inefficient participation. There are so many easier ways for God to make more than enough than to include us in that making. Like magic bullet ways. Like I, I think of the the temptation of Jesus um, in the beginning of Luke's gospel. And one of the, the things that Jesus turned down cold was the temptation to take these rocks and make bread for everyone. If Jesus had just done that, no one would ever be hungry. What gives? Why didn't he do that? that that's so much more efficient. We wouldn't be, be having all of these problems, Jesus, because Jesus refuses the magic bullet answer and instead opts for this this nonsense, gracious idea of participation and including us in that work. 
In the story, he takes a lunchbox and he multiplies it. Grace always invites us into participation, us joining God. Don't get me wrong. We're not adding anything to God's gifts. We, these, aren't, these aren't from us. These, these are, are through us. Like to, uh, uh, I was thinking of this, this post that I chuckled at, that like the idea that we might give something to God or, or add something to God's gifts. It's like, it's, like uh, it's as ludicrous as saying, between Tom Brady and I, we have seven Super Bowl rings, right? Like that's, that, that, that's kind of what is happening when we participate with God. Like, yes, it's true. We have more than enough. We have it all, but it's all God's. And we're just part of that. We slip into the stream of God's grace to enjoy it, to perpetuate it, to keep it going, to not hoard or dam it up. And over time, that actually changes us. Grace works on us. It makes us into the sort of people for whom this is easier and becomes a little more natural. That's what it's called fancy word, sanctification, becoming holy, being crafted into the likeness of Jesus, ones who are like Jesus in our lives and our places. This is something we've been learning practically at Oak since the beginning at our potlucks. I'm so proud to be part of a community that sets such a beautiful, quirky, nourishing table each week for so long. The wide open secret of potlucks is that every time we participate, we are being formed by God's grace. We are being taught and fed. We are, being, we are learning how to be host and guest. We are, are learning how to trust that there will be enough. I love that there's not really a safety net on our potlucks. Sometimes there's just a low potluck, and we learn how to not overextend ourselves and how to continue to offer grace and enough to, to the people who need it, how not to take too much. That's part of there being enough. Each week we're, we're also being reinforced in the fact that we can show up with exactly what we have and what we can bring on any given Sunday. Sometimes that'll just be ourselves. Sometimes that'll be a bag of chips. Sometimes that'll be like this super fancy, abundant thing that we've, that we've spent so much time and resources that it's super deluxe um, and, and we want to share with others out of joy, not because we're showing off. Over the years, by my estimation, we've had about 450 potluck meals together at this point. Again, like gold star, first class potluck people, raise your hand, anyone? Right. And I think these practices over that long and over a long time into the future will make us into the sort of people who can sit down in the grass, it says, at the end of our passage. I think that's, that's a little bit of an echo of Psalm 23, lying down in green pastures. It says they sat down in the grass and they enjoyed what the disciples were sharing with them. Do you notice that Jesus takes, bless, breaks, and gives it not to the people, but to the disciples to give to the people, right? Again, using us. But we can sit down in the grass, and we can enjoy God's provision. Sometimes even when that's in the valley of death, 
Sometimes when that is a unfolding table in the presence of our enemies. During communion, Brian will sing a song uh, based on Psalm 23, I shall not want. And when we say I shall not want, it doesn't mean that we no longer have needs or desires. Actually, quite the opposite. It just means that we won't have lack in those needs and desires. That we could be a people who drink from a cup that overflows. And that we can be more and more aware that we're being pursued by goodness and mercy all of our days. As we learn how to dwell in God's house and as we learn how to extend God's hospitality to others. Friends, will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the ways that it works on us, how it gives us rest, or um, how we might even sometimes be scandalized by it so that we might have to change the way we look at this world. Thank you that it's your world. Thank you that you are constantly looking for ways to include us in this good, slow work. Thanks for the ways that you provide for us. Thanks for the feasts that you spread in front of us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.